Hey everyone and welcome back to Thus Book Zarathustra, a reader's guide. In the last episode on reading and writing, Nietzsche and Zarathustra discussed basically two different things. One, Nietzsche's style of writing in the form of the aphorism, very brief statements that represent the pinnacle of human thought in different areas that are nonetheless related to the different valleys and gullies of thought. But Nietzsche presents only the aphorism to the person who's tall, strong, and lofty. He also discusses, along with this, the demands that he places on his readers, that they learn him by heart, that they don't read him idly, that they pay attention to what he's writing, think about their own lives, do the research in the different areas that he's talking about, and to try as hard as they can to embrace what Nietzsche is saying, challenge it, challenge themselves, and update their mental models of themselves and reality accordingly, so that they learn him by heart, they imbue their souls and their minds with the more correct ways of interpreting reality that Nietzsche is presenting, and can therefore operate more effectively in the world and become stronger. The second half of the section is devoted more towards psychological dispositions that we need to have when we undertake this journey of spiritual and mental development. We need to be strong, we need to be bold, we need to be courageous. We need a lofty spirituality, a lofty intellectualism, and severity in dealing with ourselves and dealing with ideas to help ourselves come up with a better way of looking at things that helps us in the world in a more effective way than the mindset that we're initially coming at Nietzsche with. In today's section, on the tree on the mountainside, Zarathustra comes across a young man who's engaged in this journey who's engaged in climbing these mountains of human thought, going down into the valleys of his own soul, going down into the valleys of different human ideas, in a project of discovery of the world and in a project of self-discovery. This young man faces the natural challenges that many of us on our journey of self-development will encounter. And so Zarathustra encourages the young man and elaborates a bit more on some of those psychological dispositions that we approached in the last chapter, and here gives them application to a real person who's undergoing these challenges. So let's get into the section. Chapter 8. On the tree on the mountainside. Zarathustra's eye had seen that a young man was avoiding him. And as he was walking alone one evening in the mountains that surrounded the town called the Motley Cow, behold, on his walk he came across this young man sitting, leaning against a tree, and looking wearily down into the valley. Zarathustra gripped the tree by which the young man was sitting and spoke thus, If I wanted to shake this tree here with my hands, I should not be able to, but the wind, 
which we do not see, tortures and bends it wherever it will. It is by invisible hands that we are bent and tortured the worst. Then the young man got up in confusion and said, I hear Zarathustra, and I was just now thinking of him. Zarathustra replied, Why does that frighten you? But it is the same with the human as with the tree. The more it aspires to the height and light, the more strongly its roots strive earthward, downward, into the dark, the depths, into evil. Yes, into evil, cried the young man. How is it possible that you uncovered my soul? Zarathustra smiled and spoke. Some souls one will never uncover, unless one first of all invents them. Yes, into evil, cried the young man once more. You have spoken the truth, Zarathustra. I no longer trust myself since aspiring to the heights, and no one else trusts me. But how does this happen? I transform myself too fast. My today refutes my yesterday. I often skip over steps when I climb. No step forgives me that. When I get to the top, I always find myself alone. No one talks to me, and the frost of solitude makes me shiver. What do I want, then, in the heights? My despising and my yearning increase together. The higher I climb, the more I despise him who climbs. What does he want, then, in the heights? How ashamed I am of my climbing and stumbling! How I mock at my violent panting. How I hate the one who can fly. How weary I am in the heights. Here the young man fell silent, and Zarathustra contemplated the tree by which they were standing, and spoke thus. This tree stands alone here in the mountains. It has grown tall beyond human and beast. And if it wanted to talk, it would have no one who could understand it, so tall has it grown. Now it is waiting and waiting. Yet what is it waiting for? It dwells too near the seat of the clouds. Is it perhaps waiting for the first lightning? When Zarathustra said this, the young man cried with violent gestures, Yes, Zarathustra, you speak the truth. I desired my own going under when I aspired to the heights and you are the lightning for which I was waiting. Behold, what am I now that you have appeared among us? It is envy of you that has destroyed me. Thus the young man spoke and wept bitterly. But Zarathustra put his arm around him and led him away. And after they had walked together for a while, Zarathustra began to speak thus, it tears at my heart. Better than your words tell it, your eye tells me your entire peril. You are not yet free. You are still seeking freedom. Overly tired your seeking has made you, and overwakeful. You aspire to the free heights. Your soul thirsts for stars. But your wicked drives too, thirst for freedom.
Your wild dogs want their freedom. They bark with delight in their cellar when your spirit strives to break open all prisons. To me, you are still a prisoner who is plotting his freedom. Ah, in such prisoners the soul becomes clever, but also deceitful and base. The liberated in spirit must yet purify himself. Much prison and mustiness is in him yet. His eye must yet become pure. Yes, I know your peril. But by my love and hope I beseech you, do not throw your love and hope away. Noble you feel yourself still. And even those who are aggrieved at you and give you the evil eye still feel you are noble. Know that a noble man stands in everyone's way. Even for the good, a noble man stands in the way. And even if they call him a good man, they want thereby to push him aside. The noble man wants to create what is new and a new virtue. The good man wants what is old and that the old be preserved. But this is not the danger of the noble man, that he might become a good man, but that he might become insolent, scornful, an annihilator. Ah, I have known noble men who lost their highest hope, and then they slandered all high hopes. Then they lived insolently in little pleasures, and beyond the day they hardly cast any goals. Spirit is also lust. This is what they said. Then the wings of their spirit broke. Now it crawls around and besmirches what it gnaws. Once they thought to become heroes, now they are lechers. Grief and horror is the hero for them now. But by my love and hope, I beseech you, do not throw the hero in your soul away. Hold sacred your highest hope. Thus spoke Zarathustra. So this young man is obviously quite torn. He's facing some internal struggles. And Nietzsche, in putting this chapter where it is, it's giving us some indication of what we're going to be going through, some of the challenges that we're going through, and he takes this chapter to explain some of that. And he begins by using the tree as a parable and saying that if he wanted to shake it with his hands, he wouldn't be able to do it. But an invisible force, something non-physical, can bend it and shake it whichever way it will. And it's the same with the human that if you're the type of person that very much cares about who you are, where you're going, how you're developing, that it's not so much the day-to-day -day things that will impact you in a very negative and lasting way. It's more the psycho-spiritual things that will impact you. So some people when their friend says something mean about them or someone insults them or someone hurls a mean joke at them they get offended and they get upset and they get hurt by that but it basically stops there some people the worst thing that can happen to them is they break their phone they can't check Facebook can't check Instagram 
However, for those who are more concerned about the destiny of their soul, the growth of who they are, the issues that matter to them aren't the day-to-day things. They're the things that impact their character, the things that they find out that are wrong with them, the areas that they see that they need to learn in. So, for example, if someone hurled an insult at someone who cares about their character and is deeply worried about where they're going in life, the opinions of some mean little person probably aren't going to matter that much to them. However, if the insult hits the mark and it pinpoints an area where you fall short and you care about that, the insult will hurt, but not because someone's been mean to you, but because you realize there's a shortcoming in who you are. It's the invisible things, the spiritual things, the mental things that impact us the most, not the day-to-day things. Zarathustra goes on to use the tree analogy to explain that not only is it the invisible problems that affect us the most, but as we try to grow, as we try to better ourselves, as we try to become more comprehensive beings, As we try to aspire to the heights, the more we also strive earthward, downward, into the dark, the depths, into evil. And just like the tree, in order to grow high, needs to have its roots struck deep into the ground and into darkness, so must we dig deep within ourselves and tap in to the evil that is at the bottom of our souls to embrace it and harness it. Nietzsche, unlike Rousseau, believes that the fundamental nature of humanity is evil. His view of reality being composed of will to power as this essence that seeks to grow and dominate And as humans being a subset of this will to power, a conglomerate of aligned and competing biological forces trying to expand their dominion over the earth and over their direct environment, Nietzsche sees our essence as will to power as being a fundamentally, in today's terms, evil drive. The drive for dominion, the drive for increased power, the drive for destruction of what is weaker. These obviously in today's parlance carry a bit of an evil overtone. As we saw in The Pale Criminal, Nietzsche knows that some people have energy, have motive force that cannot be controlled. And this motive force, this desire for destruction when it's unharnessed, leads to depravity and crime. Whereas Nietzsche understands that in order to better ourselves, to become more comprehensive, to become more capable, we need to be able to harness the negative energy that is at the heart of who we are and direct it towards productive goals. And this is true in both 
the profane world and also in our spiritual development, our psychological development. And there's elements of evil contained in both of those. So the more that you aspire to the height and light, the more you aspire to competence in a practical area, the realm of your capacity for both good and evil in that area expands with it. So if you become a very strong person by lifting weights, if you become a very talented fighter by taking martial arts classes, your ability to perform both good and evil actions increases with your ability in those martial arts. So if you become a really good fighter, you can go around picking on innocent people, which would be evil, or you can go around protecting your family, protecting yourself, which would be good. When we're trying to improve ourselves, our character too faces a similar challenge. As we try and look hard at the shortcomings of who we are in our pursuit of trying to become a virtuous person, trying to be a courageous person, a intellectual person, a funny person, a good friend, a good family member, often you need to direct that negative, destructive energy of the will to power towards shortcomings in your own soul. You need to become capable of being a good friend. You need to become capable of being funny. And so when you do something because you're a weak, stupid human who's growing and doesn't necessarily have any skills, you need to be able to identify when you've done something wrong, when your approach is off, when you have these shortcomings. And instead of getting angry when you fail at something, and instead of blaming someone else, instead of blaming society, instead of blaming people who are more privileged than you, you need to look within yourself for your own shortcomings and apply that anger, apply that evil towards eradicating your own shortcomings. And it's only through this process by channeling your negative energy, by embracing the evil that's within you, by acknowledging that you have this evil within you, that you can make a partnership with the evil and use it to lead yourself towards the good. It's very strange when people start embarking on this journey when you think that you want to be a good person, you want to be a good friend, you want to be a funny person, you, you, you have a dream of what that means. You have an idealistic vision of who you could be. And if you have the willpower, if you have the dedication, if you have the conscientiousness, you can get there. But often to get good at anything, whether it's a character trait or even just a skill, you have to deal with the failure. You have to deal with weakness. You have to deal with shortcoming on your way there. And not only that, but when you become a competent person in a particular realm, you also need to deal with the fact that you might become very proud of who you are. You might become very arrogant in how good you are in a certain area. You might become very entitled. And those things themselves 
the lack of humility, the lack of thankfulness, the lack of appreciation can lead you astray. So as we aspire to the heights, we have to go through the valleys and gullies of darkness and evil. We have to find the weakness within ourselves. We have to find the evil within ourselves. And we have to partner with that evil. We need to channel that evil and direct it towards improving ourselves, to strengthening ourselves. Just like the tree that aspires to the height, its roots strive earthward in order to secure itself to the ground, in order to draw nutrients from the earth. It draws its strength, it draws its energy from the dark, from the depths. It, it strikes hard roots into hard rocks in order to grow tall and strong. The young man sort of understands this. He says, yes, into evil, cried the young man. How is it possible that you uncovered my soul? And Zarathustra basically responds to him, you know, you'll never understand certain things unless you've been there yourself. So Zarathustra here is belying the fact that he's been in this young man's position. That he, as a more accomplished person, as a more unified person, has gone through these same processes, has gone through these same challenges. It's, it's ridiculous to think, as a person who's developing, who's thrown into the world in a particular place, in a particular time, it's impossible to believe that someone would just emerge as a perfect being who's capable in every area that matters, who's a shining beacon of light right out of the gate. Everyone needs to develop. Everyone needs to improve themselves. Everyone's got issues that they can work on to become a better person. And Zarathustra is talking to this person as someone who's been there before. He's encouraging this young man. And we see that a lot in this section. The young man brings up one of the problems that exists in the earlier stages of self-development. He says, I no longer trust myself since aspiring to the heights, and no one else trusts me. But how does this happen? I transform myself too fast. My today refutes my yesterday. I often skip over steps when I climb. No step forgives me that. When you take seriously your own development, you need to learn a lot. You need to experience a lot. And by doing so, you're going to change more rapidly than most people who aren't consciously embarking upon this journey. Given a year of time, five years of time, of dedication and hard work in sorting yourself out and becoming a stronger person, you'll be doing a lot more work in that time period than someone whose self-improvement comes only incidentally. If you've spent five years reading, if you've spent five years attempting things, trying to learn new skills, trying to improve your soul, trying to expand your sphere of capability, trying to harden your character, you're going to be a lot farther ahead in those realms than someone who spent five years watching TV who spent five years playing video games, who spent five years basically doing nothing. Sure, they'll improve too, but since it's as a result of 
incidental life changes and not really struggling to pick a direction and go for it. Sometimes they may not sometimes they might not even improve at all. We all know people who are very popular in high school and they sort of peaked there in terms of their success in life. I personally happen to think that investing in character, investing in your skill set, investing in your ability to be a human being is the best investment you can make and it makes sure that you never really peak at all. If you constantly aim to become better, if you constantly aim to improve, your best days will always be ahead of you. As opposed to the people who live for today, live for the moment. They don't care about who they are. They don't care about who they're becoming. So when you're involved in this process of consciously deciding to improve yourself in the areas that you care about, and you line up your experience, where you focus your energy, alongside your values and your virtues, you are going to propel yourself forward much faster than everyone else around you. And you'll change in ways that people will not understand. And that lack of understanding will lead to mistrust. People say, oh, what, what happened to this guy? He's so different than he used to be. What's, what's going on with him? I can't trust him. Oh, I, he doesn't like the same things that we like. Oh, he's not watching the same TV shows we're watching. What's wrong with this guy? But that's fine. That's more a reflection on their inadequacy than it is on you and your development. The sorts of people who waste their lives watching TV are the same sort who are not self-conscious at all and not dedicated towards improving themselves. And they, they lack the capacity for self-criticism because if they had that self-criticism, they would understand what you're doing. But so few people do. And when you're learning, when you're transforming yourself, when you're growing as a person, it's often the case that you'll forget something, you'll screw something up. You'll be sitting there thinking about yourself saying, okay, well, I need to become a better friend. I need to become a, a more honest person. I need to become a funnier person. I need to become a stronger person. You have all these priorities that are so strong within who you are that in the course of development, often you'll screw something up, you'll miss a step. So you'll say, okay, I want to be a good friend. I want to be a good employee. I want, to, I want to read a lot. I want to take up this hobby, that hobby. And often in the course of trying to improve yourself in many of these areas, you'll skip a step. And wherever you skip a step, you're going to get hit by life. So if you're so focused on being a good friend and becoming a stronger person and reading more books and working hard at your job, maybe you'll screw up and you'll miss a friend's birthday because you have too many priorities going on. And when you screw that up, you're going to feel bad because that's a priority for you. But because you have so many competing priorities, you're going to miss things. And as you develop, as you learn, as you feel out what values actually matter to you, what virtues take priority over which other virtues, you'll learn to develop a style through painful experience of screwing up situations in life 
that takes into account and properly values the things that matter most to you. The youth continues to speak, and he says, When I get to the top, I always find myself alone. No one talks to me, and the frost of solitude makes me shiver. What do I want, then, in the heights? Now, there's a couple things in here. Firstly, similar to what I just said, when you're involved in the process of improving yourself and dedicating yourself to something bigger than you, when you're dedicating yourself to the future image of yourself, this idealized version of who you could be, most people around you aren't doing that. You're going to be alone. No one's going to understand you. And even people who are determined to making themselves better, they're going to be developing in different ways. Nietzsche very much sees humanity as a, as a large organism that's moving through time. And the way that this organism moves through time is through the advancement and achievement of the people on the leading edge of humanity in different areas. And I think this is fairly easy to understand. Art only changes because people at the vanguard of the world of art innovate and push the field of art in a different direction. Could be good, could be bad. Science moves forward because a few people at the leading edge are pushing that edge forward. Achievement in athletics, we keep getting better, we keep setting new world records because dedicated, hard-working people, and very few of them, keep on pushing humanity forward in that direction. And depending on who you are and what your virtues are, you're going to push in whatever direction makes sense for you. And as you get farther and farther from the common mass of humanity who are watching TV, going to work, keeping their heads down, you will become less and less understandable to the average person. Picasso, how many people are actually going to understand what makes Picasso tick? Very few. Who will understand what makes the heart swell in a famous singer? Who will understand what makes a great runner want to run? Who will understand what makes a great thinker want to take on so many different seemingly unrelated fields of the world to try and understand what's going on around them? Very few people understand this. And as you get better and as you push more to the vanguard of humanity and as you try to push humanity forward into the future, there's so few people who are going to understand that about you. People who are pushing in different directions or in different fields, they'll have a common ground with people who are pushing in other directions. So someone who's very excellent and talented in athletics and someone who's very excellent and talented in the arts, they'll be able to appreciate each other's determination, hard work, struggle, and they'll be able to relate on a deeper level than most other people but still when you're in a specific niche very few people will be able to understand you so this young man he doesn't know what's happening to him 
his today refutes his yesterday, all the things he's learning. He's learning that he might have been wrong yesterday, and then tomorrow he learns something new where he shows to himself that even what he learned today may not quite be right. And, and it's a very disheartening process going through that because for people who care so much about who they are and care so much about where they're going, when they find out they've been wrong, they take that very personally. And not only that, but as you do that, as you continually correct your course and try to figure out what matters to you and advance in that direction, not only is it internally painful because you're trying to figure out what's wrong with you and you're applying that evil destructive drive against yourself to improve yourself, you're also getting farther away from the common man. And so no one's going to understand you as you're doing this. And I love I love how Nietzsche describes the next part where the youth says, my despising and my yearning increase together. The higher I climb, the more I despise him who climbs. What does he want then in the heights? How ashamed I am of my climbing and stumbling. How I mock at my violent panting. How I hate the one who, who can fly. How weary I am in the heights. He, he describes this so well. I really loved this section when I when I was reading it and first embarking on this process myself because back when I was a teenager back when I was in university when I was more or less unconscious of the fact that I was improving myself I found that I had a tendency to be very self-critical and things that I was doing poorly things that I was doing stupidly occasions where I missed a step and screwed something up and felt bad about it. I was just like the young man in this section where I didn't understand why I was being so critical. Everyone around me seemed to be having a good time. They were enjoying life. They were living for the moment. And I was sitting there being critical and doubting myself. And I didn't understand why I kept on doing it. I thought I had a problem. I kept saying to myself, why do I keep putting myself in situations where I'm going to fail? Why do I keep putting myself into difficult situations? It's almost like I, I'm not even in control of it. And when I screw something up, I, I just have this tendency to be so critical about myself. And for years, I didn't understand it. In the short term, being so critical about yourself, it's so painful. You, you, you don't have any faith in yourself. You think something's horribly wrong. And, and you start to become very bitter. And this is another area where if you're not careful, you can relapse into truly evil ideas and evil thoughts. And when I came across Nietzsche, his views on this topic were very, very smart. And I think that we saw the start of it a few sections ago in on the despisers of the body where Nietzsche talks about the split between the ego and the self and how the ego is so proud and you're so proud of your ego and your conscious mind thinks it's the be-all end-all and that it's the one pulling the strings but really it's your body it's yourself that is the leading reins of the ego and that thinking about it that way, thinking about why I'd been so critical of myself and why I kept on putting myself in difficult situations where I failed, 
when I started reading Nietzsche, I started getting a more holistic, long-term view of things. I had been stuck thinking in the short term about my own suffering, about my own anguish, which was largely self-imposed. But after I started reading Nietzsche and realized that, oh yeah, you know, things do have this tendency to try and expand their capability. Things do have a tendency towards power, towards increased capacity. And, and that it's a process that takes place through time. I started to realize that, yeah, over time, the, the areas in which I've been very critical and the, the situations where I sort of unconsciously push myself where I knew I knew I didn't really have a great chance of success but had to do it anyway, I realized that it was almost myself, my whole body, something much wiser than my conscious brain knew that I needed to develop in these areas, knew that being very critical and feeling pain where myself dictated, feeling pain in the areas of my life where I fell short of what I knew I could be, that even though I wasn't really in control of this, the, the self was sort of dictating what needed to happen, and that the short-term consequence is feeling very negative about yourself, feeling very negative about the world. But over the long run, by focusing on that, you become better. So whereas before I thought that I was always just in some sort of short-term misery, that I don't know why I kept putting myself in that situation, that I didn't know why I kept imposing on myself, Nietzsche really brought out this longer-term view that says, no, 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 wait a minute. Your conscious mind isn't in control. Your body, yourself, sort of has an understanding of what it needs to fulfill itself, to become stronger, to become bigger. And the consequences of that as you're learning and experiencing things is a deep amount of pain and shame and hurt. And so while I was focusing on the short-term constant pain, constant misery, constant whatever, I, I, I didn't have a clear view of the fact that I had actually gotten a lot better in those areas that I was very critical of. And so when Nietzsche describes this young man talking, I think even the language that he uses is so brilliant. The young man, he's speaking from the ego when he says, The higher I climb, the more I despise him who climbs. What does he want then in the heights? It's almost like this young man has an intimation that he's not in control that it's the self that's in control, it's not the ego, it's the self. That there's something within him, this passionate energy that's looking to expand into the world, that's aiming for the heights. It's forcing him on this journey that he doesn't necessarily like because in the short term it's very painful. But Zarathustra here in this entire section is encouraging him to say, no, don't worry about it, you'll get there eventually. There's pain to be overcome. There's suffering to be overcome in this journey. But that's a good thing. The pain and the suffering both points out where you fall short and provides you the motivation and energy to overcome yourself. It's absolutely beautiful how this section is written. The next part deals with basically a mistake that the young man makes. Zarathustra tries to comfort the young man 
and he says that this tree stands alone here in the mountains that has grown tall beyond human and beast. And if it wanted to talk, it would have no one who could understand it, so tall has it grown. So this is what I just described about people who are at the vanguard in a certain area of humanity, who are in the peaks, who have attained an elevated position in life, being unable to be understood by people who have not taken on the challenge of becoming better versions of themselves. And he says, Now it is waiting and waiting, yet what is it waiting for? It dwells too near the seat of the clouds. Is it perhaps waiting for the first lightning? So Zarathustra here, he, he does a couple of complicated things. One, he suggests that the type of person who's at the vanguard of humanity, who, whose self seems to demand its expansion and increased competence through time is on this path towards ascendancy, which is often a painful path. You've got to go down through deep valleys. You've got to strive your roots earthward into evil. You need to discover what's wrong with you and destroy it and improve upon it. And then you need to climb up a big mountain, which is not easy. It's tiring. And he says, what's the purpose for? Why, why does your body want this? Why does the climber want this? He says, is it perhaps because it's waiting for the first lightning? And in the prologue, the first lightning was a metaphor that Zarathustra used to describe the overhuman. And again, he's making the point here that the person, the type of people who improve themselves, who work in accordance with their virtue and direct their energy towards achieving that virtue, towards becoming stronger, more capable people, they are the harbingers of the overman. They are the people that will one day potentially bring the overhuman to life. And the young man misinterprets this. He says, yes, Zarathustra, you speak the truth. I desired my own going under when I aspired to the heights, and you are the lightning for which I was waiting. Behold, what am I now that you have appeared among us? It is envy of you that has destroyed me. And the young man, he, he makes a mistake. He's so possessed by his own suffering that he can't take that longer-term view of human development and see that all human development takes great suffering, all human development takes great pain to become a stronger person, and that through time, through generations, this might lead to an upward shift in the general level and capacity of humanity. He doesn't understand that he's playing an integral role in that process. And instead, what he does when he sees someone who has achieved more than him, he calls Zarathustra the first lightning. And he says, oh, since you've already achieved this, it's meaningless for me to do it. All, all I'm doing is suffering away here meaninglessly, whereas you've already done this. I envy you, and I only want my own undergoing. He's looking at it the wrong way. It's so similar to how I felt when I was first unconsciously on this journey of self-improvement. And one of the things I loved about reading Nietzsche is that by reading him, I began to understand that, oh yeah, okay, anytime I'm suffering, usually it's in an area that I care about, and usually that's an indication that 
I've both identified the problem and I'm getting better at it. And so being able to recontextualize my suffering and give it meaning by saying, yes, you're suffering. Yes, you're doing things wrong. Yes, as a human being, you suck in these areas. I was able to imbue that with the meaning of, but you're getting better. You're improving. And you're not just improving yourself. You're gaining the capacity to improve the people around you, to improve things at work, to improve things with your friends, to improve relationships. As you get better, as you get more competent, your range of capacity for both good and evil increases. But as long as you aim towards the good, and as long as you aim towards continual improvement, it will give your life meaning. Zarathustra then goes on to diagnose what's going on with this young man. He says, it tears at my heart better than your words tell it. Your eye tells me your entire peril. You are not yet free. You are still seeking freedom. Overly tired your seeking has made you and overwakeful. So one of the things that can happen when you're very dedicated to self-improvement, whether you're conscious of that or not, is that you can become obsessed with what you're doing wrong. You can become obsessed with your shortcomings. You can become obsessed with the things that are wrong with the world. And this seeking can make you stressed out. It can depress you. It can burn you out. It can make you overly tired. And it can also make you overwakeful. You, you become very sensitive to things that are wrong. When you do something wrong, you're, you're very conscious of it. So you're in an almost neurotic state. And you're very sensitive of what you're doing wrong. And you're very stressed out from constantly feeling ashamed of yourself or low because of your lack of capability in an area that really matters to you. And this comment that Nietzsche makes when he says you are not yet free, you are still seeking freedom. He's echoing something that he said a couple of times in recent sections. He says you aspire to the free heights, your soul thirsts for stars, that you're aiming for something better, you're aiming for an idealistic image of who you could be. Your soul thirsts for stars, who you are yearns for these transcendent shining beacons of hope that you're so strongly intoxicated in this desire to live up to your virtue, this desire to live up to who you could be, but your wicked drives too thirst for freedom. Your wild dogs want their freedom. They bark with delight in their cellar when your spirit strives to break open all prisons. And it's an echo, too, of what we saw earlier in this section where when you aspire for the heights, your roots strive earthward and deepward, too. Because in order to become a good person, in order to become a virtuous person, in order to become a better version of who you are, you need to harness that energy of the will to power that's within you that is beyond good and evil. You need to harness it and direct it. And often, as humans, we have crazy desires. 
We have absolute insane evil inside each of us. Our genetic history coming from chimpanzees and wild animals that tear each other apart at the drop of a hat. Biologically, we have very limited control systems over those more deeply rooted evil impulses. And as I said in the section on the pale criminal, the pale criminal's problem wasn't that he lacked the energy to become a virtuous person. The pale criminal's problem was that he didn't have the rational capacity to channel that energy. And the energy expressed itself as a ball of wild, uncontrollable snakes spewing their sickness into the world. That as humans, we have this energy that unless it's tamed, will be a ball of wild snakes. It will be all the worst desires that we've ever had spewed into the world. And it takes a great deal of strength, of willpower, of control to harness those things and channel their energies towards the attainment of your virtue. Nietzsche has a very strange idea of freedom. If someone were to just read the statement, you are not yet free, you are still seeking freedom, people wouldn't know what the heck he was talking about nowadays. People will say, oh, well, I'm an American, I come from the land of the free, of course I have freedom. Or they'll say, oh, I have free will because I can move my left hand or move my right hand and whatever I choose to do, I can do. Or they say, oh, you know, I can, I can do whatever I want as long as I can pay for it or as, in, in as much as I can make someone else pay for it. And that, that's what freedom is, whereas Nietzsche has a very particular view of freedom. From most of what he writes, it becomes very apparent that he's something of a determinist. Uh, he doesn't think that things follow laws per se. Laws suggest sort of a control. And when you speak of natural law, that uh, the law of gravity, that seems to imply that things are bound by universal constants, whereas Nietzsche has a very interesting way of thinking about it, where things aren't bound by natural law in as much as nodes of force in whatever magnitude they happen to be aggregated in always exude that force in the same way over other nodes of force. And it's a weird, weird way of thinking about it, but it eliminates this idea of dependency on law. And it's a bit beyond what we need to talk about right now, but I, th I think it's very interesting when he says, you are not yet free, you are st still seeking freedom. Nietzsche sees in humanity that we're all bound by fate, that things, that everything follows its natural consequences based on the amount of force that things are willing to exude upon each other at any given time. And in human terms, Nietzsche sees free will not so much as I can choose to move left or I can choose to move right or I live in America so I live in the land of the free. Nietzsche sees free will as having control over the direction of all the sub-entities of your psyche that make you up. 
So he, he's a strong fan of self-control and the ability to direct your conscious attention and direct your actions in the way that you want. So he would say, for example, that someone who, if you put a bowl of popcorn in front of them and they couldn't help themselves but eat that popcorn, he'd say, some subpersonality of your psyche is in control of you at that moment. Therefore, you don't have free will. Nietzsche very much sees people who have organized all the subcomponents of their personality and controlled the direction in which they are expressed in the world as being free people. And so if you take the example of the ball of snakes that we were just talking about, if you don't have a tight control on what you do in the world, part of you that you're not in control of has control over you and you're not free. But if you can control all the energy that's inside you and you can direct it towards something that you care about, then you are free. So when he's talking to this young man, he's saying these wild dogs want their freedom. They bark with delight in their cellar. You haven't tamed all the evils within you. You're not yet free. That's what he's talking about. And it's similar to what we saw in our discussion earlier when we're saying that people who are on this path of development will get upset with themselves because of their shortcomings. That's an indication that we're not yet free in Nietzsche's sense of being free, that we, we haven't harnessed or developed those wild snakes within us, that energy within us, to be able to get us to a place where we can control it in pursuit of our aims. And this is what Nietzsche means when he says the liberated in spirit must yet purify himself. Much prison and mustiness is in him yet. His eye must yet become pure. We need to be able to tame those wild energies and focus them for things that are more spiritually clean. We must be purified. We can't have this evil illness within us that's trying to reach out into the world. We need to be able to harness it and direct it. And part of that, as that happens, as we develop ourselves and understand the evil that exists within us and how it wants to manifest itself and the justifications that they'll give to us if we, if we let them win over us, we'll start to become more capable of better judgment. Our eyes will be clearer. I'm sure people, as they get older, very much understand when they look back at younger people and they see how foolish younger people are being, I'm sure people understand, oh, I remember when I thought like that. And I remember why I thought like that. It's because I hadn't figured this out yet. Or it's because I hadn't yet mastered my ability to do this. Or it's because I hadn't yet mastered my ability to do that. And the idea here is as you become a more developed person, as you get yourself more under control, your judgment, your ability to understand the reality in front of you gets much better. You become more clear-sighted. And so to become a free person, to become an elevated person, to become the sort of person who can aim for his virtue and live for it and develop him or herself, you need to be able to harness those evil energies within you 
and put them in the service of your goal. Put them in the service of becoming a better version of yourself. And as you do that, you'll become more clear-sighted into the ways of the world, into how other people work, and into how you work. Because you've been there. You've been through a lot of these nooks and valleys of the spirit on your way to get to the top of the mountain. So Nietzsche finishes this section by talking about the noble man and the good man. And he encourages the young man, don't throw your hope away, don't throw your love away, keep going, keep struggling, you're noble. And he contrasts that with the type of the good man, which we're going to see a lot in this book. The good man is more related to the last man. Whereas the noble man, Nietzsche very much sees in this work and in other works as being the best type of human, the most elevated type of human, the most developed type of human. Now, for modern people, it's maybe not so easy to picture what Nietzsche is talking about, especially when it comes to the noble man. The good man's a, another issue. And to wrap your head around this, I try and imagine and picture what these two people look like. For me, the nobleman is, I almost picture a 19th century Prussian nobleman, very upright, stalwart, believes in the old-fashioned virtues that are currently out of favor of honor, integrity, hard work, dedication, conscientiousness, all the things that get a bad rap, all the things that cool people sort of thumb their noses at. And Nietzsche says that the nobleman wants to create what is new and a new virtue. And it's sort of strange, because when we think noble, we tend to think old, anachronistic, things relating to the past, things maybe originating in ancient Greece or Rome. And I think what Nietzsche means here at a very high level is that the characteristics that define those ages and the nobility of those ages, integrity, courage, honor, respect, virtue, those are things that are the touchstone of deep humanity Those are things that Nietzsche considers to be the pinnacle expression of humanity. They're strong virtues, strong values, and they, they seem to be rooted in these older cultures. And in that sense, they seem to be rooted in all mankind. They seem to have found expression and appreciation across all sorts of different cultures. And a lot of people in the modern world don't like the image of the nobleman. They think of some rich person who's sort of a weird guy who doesn't know what it means to be human and he, he lords over the peasants and doesn't let them do anything. I think that if you look at the great civilizations that mankind has produced, they always seem to have been a result of the efforts of a noble class of people who understand 
what it takes to create anything of value. And to create anything of value, you need a great judgment. You need a lot of hard work. You need dedication. And you need months and years of practice in an area to refine what you're doing into its ultimate expression. So you can think of a nobleman dancing to a waltz or something like that. And a lot of people look at that and they're like, oh, that's so boring, blah, blah, blah. But the amount of technical precision involved in both the music and the dancing and the form of the expression seems to be a manifestation of all of those noble virtues into that image of the dance where it takes uprightness, honor, dignity, respect, precision, conscientiousness in order to perform. And while we think that these are old virtues and old values, Nietzsche, oddly enough, says that the noble man wants to create what is new and a new virtue. And I think you can understand this in the context of what I was describing earlier of the movement of mankind into the future being the result of individual people applying those noble virtues to themselves in the pursuit of who they are. So if you're an artist, if you're a scientist, if you're an athlete, if you're a writer, if you're a thinker, and you're the type of person who has the energy within yourself and the direction to go in in order to achieve what it means to be a great artist or thinker or painter or athlete. In order to get there, you're applying those noble virtues of courage, integrity, honor, bravery, dedication, conscientiousness in order to get there. And if you are one of those people and you're on the vanguard of humanity in that area, you're pushing that part of humanity further. And in that sense, you're creating what is new. And so oddly enough, this sort of anachronistic, old-timey belief in noble people, it makes you think of someone who just maintains the old world and doesn't do anything new, but I think it's also the same sort of people who create what is new. You can think even in Western history, all the great expressions of art uh, in sculpture, painting, uh, the development of symphonic music, those were all the result of basically the aristocratic class pushing those areas further. A lot of time just by paying different artists to do it, but those artists themselves required those noble virtues of dedication to their art to become so skilled at it that they could not only master what was old, but then also do something new with it. So Nietzsche sees all the great expressions of humanity being based on the attainment of the few, and he says that the few, by their nature, are noble. He contrasts that with the good man. And the good man, we're going to see a lot of in this book, as I mentioned. Nietzsche doesn't like the good man. And the good man, Nietzsche says, wants what is old and that the old be preserved. 
when I picture a good man, it, it's actually quite easy to picture a good man because our society today is filled with people who call themselves good people. And they're the ones who concern themselves more with short-term problems and short-term solutions, which often end up leading to longer-term problems and issues that only exacerbate the problems that they're trying to solve. They're the ones who are more emotional, they're more short-term focused, they believe less in the conscientiousness and in long stretches of application of principles to problems. And they're more running around like chickens with their heads cut off, basing their ideas less on principles and more on emotions or what everyone else is saying. And most politicians these days, most journalists, most representations in media seem to glorify this type of person. And a lot of the thoughts that come from these so-called good people while potentially well-intentioned, often lead to terrible outcomes. So an example that I've gone on before about, about the social justice warriors who can't handle the stress of exams at school and need to set up safe spaces to deal with the suffering and anxiety of taking exams they quite rightly recognize that there's an emotional issue that people are stressed and anxious and upset. But their solution of providing a safe space where people just go play with puppies and play with Play-Doh treats the problem in a way that the solution just makes the actual problem worse. The problem isn't that people are stressed out by exams and they need help. The problem is that people these days are so unused to dealing with struggle and hardship in life that they're fundamentally psychologically very weak they can't deal with adversity and life is adversity everywhere you turn and so the noble solution to someone who's stressed and worried about exams and crying and needing to play with play-doh even though they're 22 years old the noble solution would be to toughen those people up, to subject them to rigorous training in what it means to be a human, to opening their eyes to the fact that life is a struggle and that any improvement in our situation won't be resolved by safe spaces and removing the problem. The only solution is building ourselves into the type of people who can deal with the hardships of life. That's just one example. There are countless examples where the thinking of the good leads only further and further into weakness and destruction. As I said, we're going to be talking a lot about these types of people, so I'll leave it there for now. But Nietzsche says a few more interesting things that I want to talk about. He says that the danger of the noble man is not that he might become a good man, but that he might become insolent scornful, an annihilator. The nobleman, someone who cares very deeply about certain things and understands better the solutions to those problems, 
the risk isn't that they will lose their ability to think and start dealing with problems in a way that don't actually solve the problems. The risk is that they'll understand the solution to the problems, but push them too hard. They'd take a look at the social justice phenomenon and look at all these poor kids who we've raised so terribly, and the nobleman will get disgusted by that. The very high conscientious high industriousness, noble people who understand that the value of who they are is almost defined by how much hardship they can take on, would naturally get disgusted by seeing humans who are so weak and clambering over themselves for solutions that don't actually help them. And the risk is that they would be disgusted with this and become an annihilator. They'd want to get rid of these people. They'd want to apply training regimens that would be too harsh for these people. They'd want to abandon these people. It's similar, in a way, to the jester who jumped over the tightrope walker in the beginning of the book, where he just said that mankind could be jumped over. Any problems that humanity runs into, let's just get rid of the people who can't deal with those problems. It's... It's a very destructive way to deal with your society. And for people who are harsh and hard and disciplined and conscientious, which noble people are, if you push that too far, you risk doing truly terrible things. And it's very important to remember that a lot of times people aren't necessarily responsible for how they were raised. They aren't responsible for being these precious little snowflakes. To some extent they are. But a lot of it has to do with just social trends and, and how privileged everyone is and how society is structured and the messages that we sort of believe in and we push through the media that everyone's special and everyone's amazing and you don't need to actually improve yourself in any hardship in life. Your parents are going to come in and talk to your teacher who failed you on that test and they'll take care of your problems. To some extent, the snowflakes, they're, they're a victim of that. And to cast them aside or become an annihilator and deal with them in too harsh a way is it's not a good solution. And so... The nobleman, the conscientious man, someone who's turned their lives into something, when they're looking at people who haven't done so, ought to keep in mind that there are better solutions to how to deal with these problems than some of the more aggressive or extreme solutions that their minds might jump to based on disgust at what they see. Nietzsche ends this section by continuing to encourage the young man. He says, I've known noble men who lost their highest hope, and then they slandered all high hopes. Then they lived insolently in little pleasures, and beyond the day they hardly cast any goals. That it's easy for a noble man, someone who loves things very deeply and cares about things very deeply, it's easy for them to lose hope when they see degradation around them, when they see degeneracy around them, when they see 
a lot of things that don't meet their standards. It's very easy to lose hope. And Nietzsche says, once they thought to become heroes, now they are lechers. Grief and horror is the hero for them now. But by my love and hope, I beseech you, do not throw the hero in your soul away. Hold sacred your highest hope. And he's basically saying here that if, if you're the type of person who's engaged in this journey of self-development, you have the noble qualities that it takes to get there. You have the virtues that are required to become an elevated type of person. And the mindset that you need to have is that of the hero, someone who goes out to face the challenges that the world presents and take the treasure that comes from defeating those challenges. That the type of person who journeys into their soul to find out what's wrong with them and to destroy it and to build it in a better way, that requires the mindset of the hero. Take on that challenge and get the value that lies behind that challenge. And so having that mindset of the hero, don't give up on it. Even if you're struggling, even if you're depressed, even if you're anxious, even if you think you're lowly and you screw everything up, take on the spirit of the hero who's willing to willingly go out and take on challenges to become a better person, and that is what will elevate you. And at no point ever should you give up on your highest hope of becoming an elevated person. Even if the world starts to disgust you, even if you start to disgust yourself, keep on fighting that. And that's all I've got to say on this section. If you guys like the show, if you think that there's some valuable messages in here, please share it with your friends. I think uh, in today's world where we do have so many snowflakes who need safe spaces that we could all use a little bit more Nietzsche in our lives. And instead of becoming weak people who are too sensitive to the problems of the world and instead of trying to improve ourselves and harden ourselves to deal with the hardships of the world, we complain, we point fingers, we vote for laws that try and help us, we try and bend reality to suit our purposes there's too many of those people in the world so if you know anyone who is going through hard times or interested in self-development please share this podcast with them uh, there's a bunch of other good ones out there along these lines and if you'd like to get in contact with me you can reach me by email at alex at alexdrake.ca thank you very much for listening everyone i very much appreciate you guys and i'll talk to you soon